Well, I hope this is the last sermon I'll be preaching for a little while into a camera. Look forward to seeing everyone next Sunday as we meet together in the building. I think we've probably all spent the last several weeks of our lives experiencing different types of isolation. Uh, some of us have been home alone, uh, almost haunted by the quiet and by the stillness and by the loneliness. Uh, others have been at home with their immediate family. Uh, others have been going around and doing things like they did before. And even those who are doing things like before are finding that while others are self-isolating, they're not able to see all the people that they used to see. And so I think that we're feeling lonely in ways that maybe we've never felt before, or at least not in the near future. And the loneliness that we're facing, it's not a, a new reality, something that we've never experienced before. Did you know that even before this pandemic, that one in four American adults between ages of 50 and 80 say that they feel isolated? The U.S. Surgeon General in 2017 said that loneliness is a growing health epidemic in the United States. In Britain, there was a 2018 survey that revealed that 9 million British citizens, which is 14% of their population, often or always feel lonely. In fact, as a response to that, the British government appointed uh, their first ever minister for loneliness, a government position to try and address the loneliness that people are feeling and experiencing. And what about us as Christians? We have a unique blessing of having a God who says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus said that he would ask the Father and the Father would give us an advocate to be with us forever. As a part of the plan of Jesus' coming, Jesus said that he would show us the Father so that we would know that Jesus is in the Father and that we are in Jesus and that Jesus is in us. We've been invited by Scripture to relationally and experientially participate and share in the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want us to reflect on the kind of relationship we have with God. Is the relationship that you have with God one that is sustaining your soul? Or is it a relationship that kind of gets stuck in your head and it can't work its way into your heart? or it doesn't seem to impact your experiences, or it doesn't seem to function as if it's real. So I want to invite you on a journey that I think will help lead to a deeper relationship with God. It involves two things. One is knowing God, and the second thing is being known by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 says, Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by him. So what Paul says in that last part, verse 3, is strange and unexpected. We should be expecting Paul to say anyone who loves God knows God. But Paul switches the wording around to a much more passive statement where Paul says that anyone who loves God is known by him. Now, 
you might be thinking maybe in the Holy Spirit's kind of grammar check or content check, he somehow missed that. This idea that knowing God and being known by God. But let's look at Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Paul writes there, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature were not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elements, elementary spirits? So Paul is contrasting a former state with the Galatians. And that former state is described by a time when they did not know God. Then Paul goes on to say, now, however, so clearly he's contrasting the former with this present state. And we want to ask what's changed. I mean, what do we expect the encounter to say? You used to not know God. We would expect Paul to say that now you do know God. And at first, Paul does say that. But then Paul either emphasizes that or clarifies the statement. He says, or rather, to be known by God. So for Paul, the opposite state of knowing God is not not knowing God. A part of that is not being known by God. So what does it even mean to be known by God? Can't we accurately say God knows everything? That's what 1 John 3.20 says. So, so how can being known by God be a unique description of a Christian? Or how can Jesus say to certain people, Away from me, I never knew you. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards, which means to look at or to understand or to examine, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he perceives, which is the word for to know, he perceives from far away. There are some people that God knows more intimately than other people. God seems to know people on different levels, and he seems to know them in different ways. And so I think it might be helpful if we begin to categorize the kinds of knowing we're talking about. The first category we could be talking about is factual knowledge, and the second category is relational knowledge. And as we look at these different categories, we get a sense that God knows different people in different ways. See, it's interesting with factual knowledge that it's entirely possible for it to be a one-way street. It's factual knowledge that allows you to say, yeah, I know George Washington, or I know the President of the United States. And so factual knowledge doesn't require participation from another person. In fact, you can take that knowledge from someone else. Like, that's what a spy does. They don't get permission to get information about you. They take it when they want it. But then think about how that compares to relational knowledge, which has to be a two-way street. The person being known must willingly participate in the process. In fact, it's the person being known that controls how deeply you can go in your knowing of them. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that it was pretty clear they didn't want to be known? I mean, think about this imaginary after-church conversation where I go up to someone and I say, hey, it's good to meet you. My name's Craig. And they extend their hand, but they never tell me their name. It's a little awkward, but to fill the awkwardness, I might say something like, well, what brings you here this morning? And they say, well, just visiting. And I say, well, are you from around here? And they say, well, sort of. 
And it doesn't take very long for me to get the sense that this person does not want me to know them. And relationally, I can't get to know someone until they themselves allow the knowing to happen. See, I think for God to know us fully, we have to participate in allowing him to know us. Psalm 139, verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me. This is talking about that factual knowledge God searches all people. But then he goes on to say, and you know me. A now different kind of relational knowledge. So why is the idea of being known by God important? See, in relationships, we often focus on the active part of our seeking to know God. We think of knowledge kind of like sharing the same plot line or storyline of a typical Winnie the Pooh episode where Winnie wakes up and he has no honey. And so he gets all of his friends from the Hundred Acre Wood and they go off on this journey in search of honey. And they come back, of course, victorious with perils along the way. But knowing God, we sometimes categorize it as this active pursuit. And, and in this case, sometimes I'll go off and I come to find that I know God and I might have reason to be proud for my accomplishments. And I may even look around at others who don't know God in the same way I do and think I'm somehow superior to them. That's why Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge can puff up. Because if knowledge is about me getting and acquiring things, it might separate me from people because I don't think they know God like I do. But what if knowing God was only possible when we realize that God already knows us and then we willfully willfully participate in allowing him to come to know us more? What if it means that we realize that God has been wanting to know us before we even started trying to know him? I think of a guy named Jeremy who in his mid-30s went to see a counselor. His marriage was stale. He was wrestling with depression. He was dissatisfied with work. He was, he was especially frustrated because as a Christian, he didn't know what to do with all of these emotions. And the counselor started almost predictably by asking Jeremy to tell him a little bit about his childhood. Jeremy said that his parents weren't around very often he often felt ignored and neglected by them. Counselor eventually asked, do you feel like your parents knew you? Jeremy immediately said, absolutely not. And that, the counselor said, was the root of the issue. See, we as humans have a deep need not just to know things, but to be known. In fact, psychologists say that the two questions that dramatically influence our development are number one, Am I worthy of love? And number two, are others capable of loving me? So you think about how comforting it is to know that somebody else knows you. I mean, imagine being in a situation where you feel awkward in public, and once you get out of that situation, a friend comes and says, I know you must have been so uncomfortable there. And you feel comfort and solace and connection because somebody else knows you. See, what could be a more precious idea to us than the fact that we are known by God? Am I worthy of love? Well, I, I guess I must be because God wants to know me. 
and are others capable of loving me? God has proven that he is, for even while we were yet a sinner, he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. So God seeks to know us by the sending of Christ and seeks to know us through Christ to answer those questions that we can knowingly enter into a relationship with God and allow God to come to know us. In one of C.S. Lewis's story, The Voyage of the Dawn, Treader, one of the characters named Eustace, is looking for another character named Aslan. And he comes along, along the way he meets a, a boy named Edmund. And he says to Edmund of Aslan, Do you know him? And Edmund replied by saying, Well, he knows me. And what really is the more important and powerful thought? That I know him or that he knows me? Imagine that you one day have an opportunity to meet the President of the United States. And you now can go around and tell everyone, I know the President, I know the President. And that may be impressive. But what would be even more impressive is if the President knew you. See, it's a precious gift to be known by God. So how then do we come to allow ourselves to be known by God? I have three things that I'd like to point out. First of all, it starts with an awareness that in relationship with God, it is based on His desire to be known and His desire to know us. Everything we do in relationship to God is responsive to His knowledge and seeking of us. Romans 8.29 speaks of those who God foreknew. God knew us even in advance. So by allowing ourselves to be known, all we are doing is participating in the action that God initiated in our lives. Secondly, we need to learn how to be vulnerable with God. And, and I don't think that we can be vulnerable with God until we get that first piece right that we realize that God seeks to know us. And God doesn't just seek to know us once we're good and pure and righteous. He has been seeking to know us since the very beginning. As I think about this piece of vulnerability, I think about it like the kind of relationship we have in a doctor's office. And in our relationship with God, we can choose to be one of two characters, either the doctor or the patient. And whatever relationship we play, we'll assume God plays the other. So, so here's what happened in my last visit to a dermatologist office. The, the nurse leads me into a little room and she grabs a clipboard and begins asking me questions like about my tobacco use and alcohol consumption, use of illegal drugs and depression. She's on her way out the door and she points to the gown. And as if she knows what I'm thinking, she says, you can keep your underwear on. I change as quickly as I can, imagining it to be that triathlon station between events. And I sit down and I feel awfully vulnerable there in my gown. It begins to function like a security blanket. Moments later, the doctor walks in. We exchange pleasantries. And then she begins to scour every square inch of my body, checking to make sure that nothing's affected. She asks a lot of questions. She does a lot of searching. Eventually, she gives me the all-clear, invites me to get back dressed, and heads out the door. And as I think about our relationship with God, we have to decide in the presence of God, are we willing to be vulnerable? 
Sometimes in our approach to God, we will always seek to play the role of the doctor, the one who asks the questions, the one who takes the notes, the one who makes the observations. And, and that would be great if our only job was to know God. But if we are to be known by God, we need to learn also to be the patients, where God can ask the questions, where God can do the probing, and where God can do the searching. See, what if we realized God wants to know us? Would we vulnerably and passively allow him to come to know us? The third thing I think that we need to practice in terms of being known by God is that we need to learn to be honest with God. I mean, I, I think back to that doctor's visit and those questions I was asked about drugs and depression. I mean, if I wanted to, if those were issues, I could have just simply lied. Now, God knows already everything that's in our heart, but I think sometimes God wants us to know also what's in our heart. See, the irony is that God knows us better than we even know ourselves. I've always been amazed by those parents who have this kind of almost creepy knowledge about their kids. Anytime the kids go to do something new, the parents say they're going to love it or they're going to hate it, and guess what? The kids love it or hate it. But sometimes the kids don't always believe the parents, do they? I remember wanting to play the saxophone. I was sure I was going to love it. My parents thought I was going to hate it. And, well, they were right. Sometimes other people know us better than we know ourselves. God can know us better than we know ourselves. But we, will we allow ourselves to be honest enough that, God, that we can see ourselves through God's eyes? See, can we learn to practice to tell God what's going on without feeling the need to polish and varnish everything to a shiny, bright thing? Do we ever feel like we just need to impress God? There's a guy named Kerry Newhoff, and he had made a resolution that he was going to tell the absolute, unadulterated truth in every situation. He and his wife found themselves in Austin on the way to church to visit some friends of theirs. And, and on the way to church, he and his wife got in a fight. He said some things that were insensitive. His wife started crying. He began to function like the pit crew where they're like, let's just get this fixed up so that then we can get on the road. And pretty clearly, pretty soon it became clear, we're not going to be able to make it to church. And he said he felt like he had three texts he could send. Number one, he could send something that said, hey, something came up and we're not going to be able to make it today. Or two, he could say, sorry, my wife's not feeling well, so we won't be there. Or three, he could send a text that says, we won't be at church this morning. I was a jerk of a husband today. And it's not going to be a good morning for us. I'm sorry, I'll explain later. So which of those three texts do you think that you would send? Now imagine rather than sending a text to a friend, imagine a prayerful conversation with God. Have you developed the habit of honestly sharing with God where you are? See, for God to know us, we need to learn to practice honesty. See, as I think about our times of isolation, I want to encourage us to develop a deeper relationship with God. By doing so, you're going to develop not just a factual knowledge of God, but you will develop a relational knowledge, something that is authentic and experiential. And, and that will allow us or enable us in these times of loneliness to feel God's own presence, to be able to remind ourselves that we are known by God. 
See, I think of Jesus' words in John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. N.T. Wright suggests, to be acknowledged by Jesus himself will be amazing. But to have him acknowledge us before his Father will be the moment of all moments. We need to take comfort in the fact that we are known by God and that we are known by Christ. Makes me think of a situation in the First World War where the British brought back a lot of soldiers that they could not identify. And they didn't know how to honor those who had died. And, and, and one of the Imperial War Graves Commission officers suggested that on every tomb they mark the words known unto God. And that was the best way they could come up with honoring those people. See, the truth is that our memories will fade. We will forget things. Even the things we've learned of God will go away. But we will always be known by God. So I pray that as we navigate through this week, we'll seek not just to know God. I think that's a skill that we've learned well but that we'll allow ourselves to be known by God. And that in our loneliness, we will encounter a God who seeks to be in relationship with us.